This is CNN. Radio. This is CNN Profiles. Captain Cousteau is waiting for his ship Calypso, now entering Monaco Harbor. I'm your host, Michael Shoulder. On the brink of a major expedition, he readies himself to face the challenge of the sea's danger and mystery. And this story is about one of the most important family businesses on the face of the earth. The Calypso crew and I will be undertaking a series of voyages of exploration and discovery in all the seas of the world. We will endeavor to save magnificent creatures threatened with extinction. The undersea world of Jacques Cousteau was a fixture on American television through much of the 1960s and 70s. The French explorer's dramatic underwater adventures were captured on film by his son, cameraman and explorer Philippe Cousteau, who tragically died when the seaplane he was piloting crashed months before his own son, Philippe Jr., was born. Philippe Cousteau Jr. has followed in the tradition of his father and his grandfather and joins us on this CNN profile. But before we meet him, we want to explain something. My colleagues here at CNN Profiles and I debated whether we should put this profile on hold. We timed it to run in the days before the 43rd annual Earth Day and recorded it before the bombing at the Boston Marathon. We decided to bring you Philippe Cousteau now for two reasons. First, the Boston bombing story is developing so quickly we weren't sure what insight we could provide beyond the breaking news you're already getting. And second, this, too, is a story about saving lives by saving the ocean. The depletion of species and their critical habitats and the life support systems they, in turn, provide to the human race are as impactful as any breaking news story out there. Those who are devoting their lives to documenting the ocean's destruction and trying to reverse that destruction are in many ways like the first responders we see at violent eruptions, like the ones in Boston and, as we speak, the explosion at that fertilizer plant near Waco, Texas. And so, as we approach Earth Day, we bring you Philippe Cousteau, Jr. Philippe, welcome to CNN Profiles. Thanks for having me, Michael. Why don't you introduce yourself and, and, and remind those of us, maybe in a younger generation, why we should know the name Cousteau. Well, I, uh, as you said, my name is Philippe Cousteau, and I am an environmental advocate. I'm a special correspondent for CNN and also the grandson of Jacques Cousteau. That certainly is a name that many people around the world remember. And my father was Philippe Cousteau Sr., that uh, my father and grandfather were uh, legends in their time. They were uh, pioneers of ocean exploration and conservation. My grandfather is probably best known for both co-inventing the aqualung, which allows people to scuba dive, uh, but also for his famous documentary series, The Undersea World of Jacques Cousteau, that aired for decades in the latter half of the 20th century. And uh, I had the opportunity, though I never knew my father, he died about six months before I was born. Uh, I knew my grandfather until he died when I was about 17, and uh, he certainly instilled in me uh, many of the values that, uh, that he shared with the world. Uh, they were our responsibility to take action every day to ensure a sustainable uh, future, for not only for ourselves, but for our children. And uh, so that is manifested in all the different things that I do, not just the work with CNN, but I run one of the leading youth environmental education groups here in the United States. Uh, we also do work around the world, Earth Echo International. 
We launched a uh, sustainable investment fund on the New York Stock Exchange uh, about six months ago to get involved in financial markets and how we can leverage them to do good, all with the spirit of, of making the world a better place. In the 60s and 70s, my father was my right there with my grandfather filming. He filmed 26 of the ABC series, Fantasy World of Jacques Cousteau. He'd won multiple Emmys. He was globally uh, recognized and famous in his own right. And uh, his passion was flying. And so in many of the films in the 1970s, there is a seaplane. It was called the Flying Calypso, named after, of course, uh, the famous ship that my grandfather had called the Calypso that they traveled around the world in. Though he loved to fly, it unfortunately um, also ended up being uh, um, the cause of his death. In 1979, they were in the summer, they were doing repairs on the plane on the Taos River just off of Lisbon in Portugal. And the front landing gear malfunctioned. My father was landing the plane, and uh, due to no fault of his own, the landing bay opened, water flooded into the front of the plane, the plane flipped, the co-pilot's arm was severed, but my father was killed. Co-pilot survived. You know, that certainly had a huge impact on on my life, and of course, uh, of my mother. She was three months pregnant with me, and uh, had a three-year-old, my sister Alexandra. And um, to her credit, she really worked hard throughout our lives. Uh, she's still, thank goodness, still with us today uh, and still has a huge influence on us to, to make us aware of our legacy, to make us aware of the wonderful work that my father and grandfather did, but in a way that we could be proud of and feel a positive responsibility. She was never the kind of person who said, you have to do this X, Y, or Z specifically. What she did tell us is that we have a responsibility to be proud of that legacy and no matter what our passions are, to do justice and, and, and honor that legacy and, and do what we can to make the world a better place. Given your father's story, though, I mean, there are a lot of mothers out there who would have reacted by becoming very overprotective. It's like, I don't want this to happen again. And there's clearly a certain amount of risk taking one has to take when, when, you're, when you're at the cutting edge of a field like this. Uh, did you ever get that sense of be careful in your head, or did you just go for it? You know, never to a degree of paranoia. I, I certainly was always aware. Uh, growing up, I never had that sense of invincibility that I think a lot of young men have, probably because I grew up with a very r- real sense of, 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 of mortality and, and the finite nature of life, simply because of, of what happened to my father. He was 39 years old. He was flying an airplane, and you know, he, was a, he was at the top of the world. He was great, doing great work, and he was changing the world, and, and um, for no reason, uh, he died. I have to interrupt you, because we just interviewed Wes Craven, who is mm-hmm. the writer, famous writer and director of a number of the greatest horror flicks ever, a mm-hmm. very, very thoughtful man, and he reframed the whole meaning of horror films from his perspective, I think. And basically that you have to confront the darkness first and confront your worst fears to really be able to move on and get the most out of life. And I just wonder if if that resonates with you in any way. It absolutely does. I, you know, growing up with, with that tragedy and seeing how it affected my mother and it was a, you know, daily uh, presence in our lives, there was a sense of both the, the the finite nature of life, but but not in a negative way, in a way that that we have to embrace life because it is so short. And you could walk across the street, you could uh, you know have some some disease that that catches you uh, by surprise, and and uh, six months later you know you're at death's door. 
and it happens to people all the time, it was that sense of, of the finite nature of life that, 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 that I know inspired me to, to live, try and live life to the fullest. And, you know, I, I, when I was 26, you know, I encountered that again when I was filming with Steve Irwin, a documentary, Ocean's Deadliest for Animal Planet, when he died uh, on expedition from a stingray, freak accident with stingrays. And, um, you know, there he was, I believe at the time he was about 41, 42 and, uh, we'd been filming for a few weeks and, uh, he had two little kids, you know, he was world famous for his work in conservation. And, and again, you know, at the top of his game, a, a young man with two little kids, he, um, he was killed through a freak accident. I, I had and no was idea. Very, uh, I, had, I had no idea you were on that mission. I mean, he died right there in, in our arms. And uh, well, we were all you know, working hard to CPR, et cetera. We got him to paramedics and they, they, uh, they pronounced him dead. But um, it was off the coast of uh, Northeastern Australia, right in the, you know, in the, in the middle of filming uh, that show. And um, there, was, there was eerie similarities to his circumstances uh, and my father's circumstances. And um, it was an, yet and again another reminder that uh, that life is short and, and, and precious and we should make use of the time that we have in the best way that we can because it's you never know when it's over. Well, and the location of, of, of that tragedy was it was on a coral reef, correct? It was on a coral reef. We were it was a beautiful sunny day, uh, you know, and I was reading on the boat doing a little bit of research. We were actually waiting for tiger sharks to show up because, as, you know, anybody that works in film and media in, in nature, the, the animals don't show up on cue. So Steve was out snorkeling, capturing just some some raw basic footage of, of animals. And they saw this beautiful stingray and and he was swimming above it, as I've seen so many times people do. I've done. And, and you see on the cover of dive magazines all the time. And it was just this freak angle accident that the stingray got startled, swam to one side. The barb on its tail got caught in Steve's shirt and just happened to find its way into uh, right into the middle of his heart. That one in a billion accident, never before recorded. And I would, I, would, I would suggest never again will that happen. And it was just, again, one of those, you know, for all the dangerous, wild things that he did and that my father did, it was just a freak accident that, that took them away. Well, and the, the end goal, of course, of, of what he did in so many ways was to sort of shine a light on what's going on in, na- in parts of nature that we wouldn't normally see. And this brings us really to, to your specialty, which is the ocean. And so much of what is going on now is breaking news, and it's beneath the surface, so we're not aware of it. So you are starting... Out of sight, out of mind. Out yeah. of sight, out of mind. Uh, that's right. Um, Describe this project you're doing with Google and and why it's so important and why it really might reveal some serious breaking news. Well, this is uh, this is actually you know I can't take credit for it. It was um, as in my role as a host of of a series called Going Green on CNN International. We were we were visiting with a group called the Catlin Sea View Survey out in Australia, and it's really their project. We were just able to to go along for the ride and and uh, and tell the story. They are a group of scientists and explorers that have come together and recognize that even in the most iconic coral reef in the world, the Great Barrier Reef off Australia, scientists have explored less than 20%. And over the last few decades, about half the coral on the Great Barrier Reef has disappeared for various different reasons, including climate uh, problems, uh, warming ocean temperatures, pollution, overfishing, etc. 
And they rightfully uh, uh, so were looking for a solution to try and figure out how to get a handle on this ecosystem and, and understand and research this ecosystem before it was too late. And one of, of course, the, the constraints is modern technology up, in, up until very, very recently means that in a, dive, in a scuba dive, in one single scuba dive, you can only cover you know, a few square meters in any kind of meaningful way from a survey perspective and doing research on, on an area. And yet there are you know, millions of, uh, of square meters, hundreds of thousands of square, square kilometers of, of the Great Barrier Reef that are virtually unexplored. And so they looked at how they could leverage new technology through computers and 360-degree cameras that they would then attach to these high-powered underwater scooters. And in so doing, they could travel about the distance of a kilometer underwater in one single dive. And through these these 360-degree high-definition cameras and these computer systems that would then stitch those images together, they would be able to map entire coral reefs a kilometer in one single dive which exponentially increased the opportunity and the area of which we could explore and map. In addition, you know, there's a huge gap between scientific knowledge and public knowledge. And recognizing that, they realized that they needed to create a partnership to not wait until these, these results were published in a scientific paper, but to get it out as quickly as possible. And so they established a partnership with Google. So essentially, think of it as taking Google's Street View technology underwater. And they, uh, um, in partnership with Google, there's, they've, they've had millions of people that have participated in, in, and looked at these videos and these films. They're taking it to the next level over time that they'll allow people to be able to uh, start helping map and identify species and get involved in the actual science itself with these images, these incredible images uh, with these high-def cameras that they have, 360-degree view of, of, of these reefs that in many cases no one has ever seen before and certainly no one has mapped before. Uh, and this is CNN Profiles. We're speaking with Philippe Cousteau. Explain for us why the coral reefs are so essential to the health of the ocean and to the biodiversity of species in the ocean. Michael, that's a great question. And, you know, many people have images of, of coral reefs or of, of beautiful fish swimming around, but very few people recognize just how important they are. Oftentimes, they're referred to as the, the rainforest of the ocean and actually coral reefs have more species than rainforests on land so they are the most biodiverse ecosystem in the entire world and coral reefs are nurseries in many cases and critical habitats for a lot of the food and a lot of the seafood that we enjoy so coral reefs directly provide up to a billion people a year with their sources their primary sources of protein and that's, that's, a, that's a pretty staggering statistic when you think about it. In addition, coral reefs are uh, a critical uh, habitat along the coast that help to protect against tsunamis, against uh, natural disasters, because they, they act as a buffer against those types of very large waves. And so in areas, you know, the, the, the terrible tsunami we had uh, uh, years ago in, in Asia that killed so many people and, and, and cost so many billions of dollars in, uh, in damage, the places that had healthy coral reefs or healthy, for example, mangrove coastal habitats were largely spared 
and those areas that uh, that did not uh, have healthy uh, healthy ecosystems, the wave energy was able to plow right through and really uh, really affect uh, a lot of people. So, so if we view the ocean as a living being and it's really a, in so many ways our life support system, it's as if it almost sounds like well we've never gotten a baseline CAT scan. We don't even know how many coral reefs and and to what extent they are out there. Correct. It's a great way of putting it, and it's that we we've explored less than ten percent of our ocean. Which which brings and us yet, back to you know, which brings us back to land just for one second, because you you probably are aware of this project. But you know, E. O. Wilson at Harvard, who was really sort of a, in mm-hmm. some ways the father of biodiversity awareness on land, correct? A legend, more than, more, amazing, yeah, another legend, and uh, not as famous a name in the general public as Cousteau, and in part probably because. He has focused so much on the tiniest species, the ones that really in some ways can't be photographed. But he has started this Encyclopedia of Life, which you can find online. And the basic premise is we only know about 10 percent of the species on land. We've only identified 10 percent of them. And we better we better identify the other 90 percent fast because they could be disappearing right in front of our eyes. It's a great point, the great extinction crisis that we face today in, in the fact that uh, animals are disappearing at such an alarming rate. I mean, we, we hear about the, the elephants, and certainly there's, I mean, this year has seen some of the highest uh, poaching of elephants in, in Africa, rhinos and, and, you know, the large animals that are disappearing, tigers. There are more tigers in captivity than there are in, in the wild. But what we're forgetting is that every year, hundreds of species do actually go extinct. And many of them are small, but size doesn't necessarily mean that they're not important. Many of them are absolutely critical to sustainable ecosystems on this planet. And as you pointed out, uh, many of that happens in the ocean. Uh, And the oceans are absolutely critical to humanity surviving on this planet. So so let's develop a strategy right now because E.O. Wilson's strategy on land, I, I believe he's really one of the intellectual godfathers of a particular strategy that says we cannot save everything. We've got to go for what I believe he has termed biodiversity hotspots. We've got to find those places on Earth that have the greatest variety of life at least protect those areas and the surrounding areas. Is there an equivalent plan for the ocean? Well, it's it's a great strategy, right? So it's it's like zoning, basically saying that there are some areas that uh, that are that are that are critical that that are appropriate to zone in one way, and and in pro- some areas appropriate to zone in another. You wouldn't build a coal-fired power plant uh, at the foot of El Capitan in Yosemite National Park. You wouldn't. Uh, you know, build, uh, you know, pave over uh, areas that, uh, you know, that the geysers in Yellowstone. Uh, it's the same in the oceans. And unfortunately, the whole phenomenon that oceans and so much of them are out of sight and out of mind is one of the big challenges we face because it's very expensive. It's very difficult to explore the oceans. It's dark. It's cold. There's lots of pressure. Uh, you know, only a f- small sliver of the surface of the oceans is actually has light penetrate into it uh, down to about 600 feet or so. So you deal with an issue where um, it's very expensive and very difficult to map the oceans, but there is an effort afoot where we are trying to say, listen, there are areas where it may be appropriate to do certain activities in the ocean. Um, and there are many areas where it's not. So it doesn't make sense to go down and, and dump a bunch of waste and, and have these bottom trawling systems on very vibrant 
uh, ecosystems at the bottom of the ocean. And some areas are, are less uh, uh, vibrant. It doesn't make sense, perhaps, to drill for oil in the Arctic, as, as Shell so so dramatically saw with uh, all of the complications over the last two years of, of, uh, of storms and, and problems with its rigs up in the Arctic and has currently abandoned its efforts uh, to, to drill for oil in the Arctic. There are some areas that are appropriate for certain activities and others that are not. And so there are certain efforts afoot to try and do that. But I should say, Michael, that you know, there's still we, – we, we invest a, roughly a 1,000 times more resources in the United States looking up into space – than we do looking down into the oceans. And there's no question that uh, space exploration has been valuable, that we've learned a great deal about our place in the universe and certainly about our, our planet. But I would argue maybe for a little bit more parity. Knowing if there was ever water on Mars, as great as it sounds and as exciting, as interesting, and doesn't mean survival on this planet. It has nothing to do with whether we survive on this planet. Healthy oceans do. So there's a huge disparity between our investment in understanding and protecting the oceans and our investment in, say, sending people to Mars. Again, I'm not denigrating those activities at all. But what I am arguing is that perhaps we need to reevaluate those investments and at the very least seek parity, seek an even investment in, in those ecosystems that are absolutely vital for life on this planet. All right, so let's let's finish this up with something very important. I understand you are an enormous foodie. <laughs> yes, and it, I do and, love it, food. and it comes from your French roots, I guess, to some degree. I think I think it does definitely. What, what kind of food did you grow up with when you were a kid? You know, my mother was was so wonderful in so many different ways, but uh, she always made us cook at least one thing every week, my sister and I. When you were how old? Uh, from the time I can remember. Um, you know, and it didn't matter if it was a little salad or if it was just putting together, you know, some chopped, you know, tomatoes or whatever. As long as we put the effort in, into, uh, into making something for, for all three of us to enjoy. And, um, but she always made food fun. She always made learning about uh, uh, and growing in that we had a little garden in the backyard and, and, and growing our own food and, and watching that process. I remember my mom when we were about um, six or seven years old. I was living in, uh, we were living in California at the time. My mother ordered worms, composting worms. And this was just fascinating to us at the time. Little kids, my sister uh, would have been about nine and I was six. And um, we had this huge box of all these wriggly red worms. And um, so we'd compost them and we'd feed them food and, and uh, they'd grow really, really big. And then we'd take them and move them to the garden. And it was this whole biology experiment that was all connected to our food and where our food comes from. My mom was always wonderful at, uh, at bringing seemingly mundane things alive and making them exciting. I think that's really where it comes from for me. And, uh, and, and I, that, that journey has continued. I love I love. Ex- ex- experimenting with food and thinking about different types of food and and how we can make some a real never settle for bad food i don't think there's any excuse for bad food and it doesn't have to be complicated it could be simple but i don't think there's any excuse uh for bad food but i I gotta talk about seafood because clearly if you love food unless you're a vegetarian you gotta love seafood so i have a business idea for you and you tell me the truth if anybody has ever proposed this to you but when my family and i go out for seafood we buy seafood we really do want to buy something sustainable. And uh, the Monterey Bay Aquarium uh, has a list of seafoods that are you know, mm-hmm. the most sustainable, the least sustainable. Go into business with me. Let's start a Cousteau restaurant chain. Very high end. But, by, <laughs> but here's the thing. I, I respect the Cousteau name. I want to protect it. 
Is there a way to run, because it is going to be a major source of protein for a long, long time to come, is there a way to turn the entire seafood industry into a Cusco-certified sustainable industry? Well, that's a good question. I have to say, Mike, this is where I'm going to have to separate my own personal taste from pragmatic approaches to global sustainability. Because I actually... And I don't eat a lot of meat, too, because, you know, meat consumption in this country is one of the big, big in this world on this planet is one of the big challenges we face, the growth in meat consumption and its consumption of water and, and carbon and land, et cetera. But I actually don't eat seafood. Never have because I don't like it. I'm one of those few people. I've met a few people like me that from the, the little age, just the smell, the, the look, I've just always been turned off by seafood. So that's my personal thing. So just give us before mm-hmm. we leave, give us the, you know, that one Philippe Cousteau recipe that, oh, by the way, I understand you're engaged, right? Yes, I am. So, so you know, w- w- give us a recipe that you would make for your wife-to-be to make her very happy. Um, so one of my favorite things to do is uh, very simple, little inspiration from some of my Tex-Mex, uh, Calmex food that my mother used to make for us, uh, to make a little bit of homemade pico de gallo with uh, tomatoes, coriander, uh, white onions, a little salt and pepper, and some jalapeno peppers, dash of, uh, uh, of lime juice. Mix that with then uh, take a corn tortilla with a little bit of Parmesan cheese, which is actually similar to some types of traditional Mexican cheeses that you can find. I prefer that to some of the cheddars and other. But a little bit of t- Parmesan cheese that's kind of the base, a little bit of the meatiness to it on the corn tortilla in a pan. Let it melt a little bit. On top of that, put a little bit of sliced avocado. Some uh, some pico de gallo, a little bit of sour cream if you want, and uh, wrap that up, and it is absolutely fantastic, healthy, yummy meal, and it's uh, certainly one of uh, my fiance Ashlyn's and uh, one of her favorite meals that I make for. Her. Was that the way to her heart? Was the cooking what what did it for her? <laughs> I did actually. One of my other favorite things to make is is pesto. And so in this case, I did, uh, it was a little, the first thing I ever made for her, it was, uh, it, there was some meat, there was some chicken in it. I went uh, um, to the market and, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm very picky about the meat that I do eat, but occasionally uh, do uh, do get a little bit of chicken or, or, or some grass-fed uh, meat or buffalo steak or something, uh, maybe a couple times a month at, at most. But I went and got a little uh, chicken, cooked it in the oven, and uh, made some homemade pesto, which is very, very simple, equal parts Parmesan and toasted pine nuts with a handful of basil leaves, some olive oil, a little bit of garlic and, and lemon juice uh, in, a, in a little food processor. Uh, also with a tortilla, you just put a little sliced uh, chicken, a little pesto on top of that, a little bit of fresh scallions or shallots and a little arugula and some chopped tomatoes. Roll that up, and again, it's um, just a wonderful, easy fast, healthy thing to uh, to make. That's the first thing I made for her, and I definitely think it helped her to be like, oh, a guy who can cook. I like this. It's uh, Gentlemen, it's definitely uh, a good thing to be able to know how to impress the ladies. You know, I changed my mind. I'm, I'm going to invest in the Philippe Cousteau dating show. <laughs> that's That's where the brand should be. There you go. I'm ready, Michael. We'll do that for sure. Thank you so much for joining us on CNN Profiles. Oh, it's my pleasure, Michael. Thanks for having me. By the way, you can find CNN Profiles on our website, cnn.com slash soundwaves, or download us from iTunes, or go to SoundCloud. And please, if you like what you hear, don't be shy. Share.